because I'm going to try something different tonight. Usually what I do is I just use this podcasting platform to put up some talks that I've given in various places. But I've been thinking about using the platform to actually develop a podcast of my own. And I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. I don't know if, uh, if anybody would want that, um, if there's much of a, a call for it. But... It has been something that's been on the back of my mind. And the idea that came to me today was that perhaps what I should do occasionally is do what I do anyway. Uh, Most days, I will spend some time just pacing my room and thinking about a particular topic. I'll have spent some time reading about it. I'll have uh, spent some time reflecting on it. And then I will pace back and forth for a couple of hours and get everything as clear as I can in my mind. And sometimes that goes nowhere. It's something that I think about and then forget. Uh, But sometimes that leads to other insights and eventually it gets into my talks or my books. And I thought, well, what if... What if I uh, created a podcast that was kind of like you walk in my room with me? So instead of just pacing on my own, I can feel a little bit less lonely that you're there beside me. And perhaps something that I say might uh, be beneficial to you. So that's what's happening right now. I'm in my room and I'm pacing about and I'm talking to you. Uh, So we'll see where it goes. I'm not promising anything. Uh, because I don't even know what this will be like. But if it's successful and uh, if I you know, do a few of these and it seems to work, then maybe I'll start looking at doing them every week, uh, getting a bit of a theme tune, you know, just jazzing it up a little bit. But let's start with today's pacing. Uh, what have I been thinking about? Uh, unfortunately, this is quite a controversial one to start with. Uh, so it might be the, the, the worst idea <laughs> in the world because I'm going to drop the C word, uh, which is definitely very controversial. Uh, we're going to talk about capitalism. And capitalism, of course, is a very divisive term. Uh, it can cause a lot of uh, emotional feelings from people who want to defend capitalism to people who want to attack it. But actually, broadly speaking, capitalism in its widest form Uh, is something that most people in the Western world take for granted. Uh, Within progressive politics, for example, uh, largely capitalism is assumed. Uh, The idea is simply that not very many people get to the table and that actually everybody should get to the table. Uh, But the idea that we should overturn the table uh, is, is less talked about. Now, I have lots of very good friends who are smart, intelligent capitalists, And by that, I mean not that they participate in capitalism, because we all participate in capitalism, but they believe that it is the least bad system for the betterment of society, and that it has lots of problems, and potentially it could destroy us all, but it's still the least bad option we have. And while they may not go as far as saying it's the end of history, uh which means it's the last 
you know, significant economic system, political system uh, that we will develop. It's the, it's the truth, right? Um, while they may not explicitly say that, that is one of the implicit arguments. And the argument is basically that, that capitalism is natural, that of course we can uh, tweak it, uh, we can make it better, we can maybe make capitalism work for more people, we can even maybe regulate capitalism in various ways to, to try to mitigate against some of its worst excesses. Uh, by the way, I live in Los Angeles and I live uh, in a pretty uh, uh, urban area, so you'll hear fire engines and police cars <laughs> driving past on a regular basis. There was a fire engine just went past. Uh, so yeah, where was I? Oh yeah, well, we may have to regulate capitalism in various ways. Um, as, as a whole, it is the most natural system we have. It is a reflection of something in our nature, and it galvanizes that, it mobilizes that for the best, uh, for the good of society as a whole. So I want to go over that argument. I want to give it space to breathe and really kind of like understand it. And then I want to offer some potential uh, critiques of that position. So in a nutshell, the position that, and this is what Ayn Rand would say, the idea is that capitalism, forget about the moral dimension of it. Uh, basically, capitalism works with the idea that we have natural instincts for survival and for peace. Uh, survival in the sense of I want to protect myself, but also, you know, those around me, those I care about. And in terms of peace, uh, what I'm talking about in a sense is I want equilibrium in my body and in my family and in my society. I, I want uh, to get rid of the excitation of stress and anxiety in my life. So these are very natural instincts for survival and for equilibrium and peace and harmony. Uh, so, you know, think about sitting on a beach uh, for a holiday where you're not working and you feel relaxed, uh, or maybe you've gone for a massage or something like that, and you just feel at peace. So we have this natural desire for this, but we live in a world, of course, that is full of conflict, full of opposing positions, full of other people who also want peace and harmony and also want the best for them and their family and their community. And this causes all sorts of strife. But capitalism works to try to not work against our desires, right? So one of the critiques of other political systems is even if you decide that one is morally better, it's not going to work if it goes against something very natural. You know, if it goes against nature itself, then it doesn't matter how moral it is. It's just not going to work. Maybe there are saints, uh, you know, individuals who are able to, through you know, sheer force of will or mental illness or spiritual practices, whatever it is, are able to somehow denature themselves. But we need a system that works with our nature and not against it. And that can work with it in such a way that it can mobilize our natural inclinations to survival and to our own good and somehow get that to 
overall benefit everybody, even if some people benefit from it a lot and a few people maybe are destroyed by it. In general, there's a betterment for everybody. And, you know, this is like, uh, this is like evolution. Evolution is a process that involves a lot of violence, a lot of destruction, a lot of antagonism. But ev the reason why there are complex creatures in the world is because evolution is able to galvanize, mobilize, utilize this violence and this antagonism in a way that is productive. Now, there's already a problem with the way I'm describing that because, of course, evolution doesn't do anything. It's not something that does anything. Evolution is just a name we give to a process that occurs. And the process is a very simple one. It has three elements. If you have, within a given system, if you have something that can replicate, so give birth, for example, so, so something that can replicate itself, that's the first aspect that uh, evolution requires, is replication. The second is that that replication can differ from its origin through, say, genetic mutation. So difference, there is repetition, and there is the, the repetition of something that is slightly different from what came before it. That's the second element that's required. And then the third element is an environment that will be more conducive to one of those differences than the other, right? And if you have those three elements, that's selection, you have re uh, uh, reproduction, you have uh, difference, and you have selection, well, you have evolution. And evolution is simply this process that uh, uh, results in greater and greater detours between two deaths. So if you think about, if you think about life erupting, what life is, life is, a, is the, the beginning of a slight interruption in nothingness. So there's the nothingness before you were born, and there's the nothingness after you die, right? And life is a little detour between those two. Well, it splits it open like an atom, right? Splits the atom of nothingness and creates a little, a little tiny gap. And initially, that gap was probably a fraction of a second, right? The, the very first eruption of life on Earth was probably a fraction of a second and disappeared entirely. And that probably happened innumerable times before that little gap that, little, that was opened up in nothingness uh, was able to hang around enough to be able to replicate something, to replicate itself. And that was able to replicate itself. And in those replications, there were slight differences. And some of those replications were uh, able to survive better than others. And what happened is eventually, that little gap between two deaths, the death, the nothingness before we were born, and nothingness after, that detour got bigger and bigger and bigger. And we are at a point now where the detour between these two nothingness, uh, for many of us, is around, I don't know, 70, 80 years, I don't know. And in the future, will probably be a lot longer. So evolution, just through this blind process, has created this very interesting detour, 
which has not simply brought life into being and also prolonged life in its being, but also uh, resulted in a, a, a more complex, more complex forms of life. So you have like life and then you have consciousness comes out of life and then you have self-consciousness coming out of consciousness. So this life has not simply got longer and longer, but has also got deeper and deeper. And we have got to a point where this life can also be relatively peaceful. You know, the early days of animals, uh, and we still see it in the animal kingdom, is a place of violence and difficulty and suffering. Uh, domestic rabbits, for example, I think they live for, you know, 10 to 12 years. But in the wild, rabbits, I'm not sure, but I'm guessing would live a matter of, of probably less than five years because of all of the, the potential predators and dangers that are in the natural world. So that's evolution. And the idea is that we have, through evolution, the development of instincts. And instincts uh, are basically the organism's defense against death, right? And instincts have a number of features to them. I'm going to talk about three. And I've actually talked about the difference between instinct and drive on the fundamentalists. Elliot and I did a three-part series on, on this subject. So you might want to go and have a listen to that. And I've also given talks on it as well. But so just in a nutshell, I'll outline what an instinct looks like. Uh, an instinct is a very strong form of desire, right? An instinct is not just where, you know, you want, you want coffee or something like that. An instinct is very, very strong. And in animals, you see it manifesting three things. First of all, an instinct has a very particular object. An instinct is for something like mating or shelter or sustenance. And the instinct then goes towards those things. And if it gets those things, if the animal is able to get the shelter or the sustenance or the sex, uh, then the animal is satisfied until it needs those things again. So that's the second thing about an instinct, is an instinct can have satisfaction and can remain satisfied if the animal continues to get food and has a, a stable shelter. And then the third dimension is that an instinct which we've already said, really, but an instinct is in the service of life. It is in the service of attempting to keep that organism away from that second death. Not just uh, to keep it away from that second death, but also to give that organism equilibrium, harmony, a sense of uh, inner peace, right? Now, the whole point of the argument for capitalism is that capitalism works because it, it, it takes this into consideration, that we have these instincts for things, we want things, and capitalism provides a way for us to pursue those. Not everybody gets them, and maybe people can fantasize about a type of capitalist system where more and more people get to the table and get what they want, but ultimately, Capitalism works because it doesn't try to stop the instincts. It doesn't try to shut them down. Rather, it tries to work with them, but tries to work with them in a particular way to the betterment of society. And so the idea might be like this, right? 
evolution is not something that exists. It's not a thing. It's a process, right? It's a, it's a process within reality. However, when we discovered the process and when we began to understand how the process worked, we were able to utilize it in productive ways. So we were able to, for example, breed animals that would be less susceptible to certain diseases. We were able to breed animals in such a way that they would be bigger and stronger or the chickens would lay more eggs. Uh, we were even able to use our understanding of evolutionary processes to create fruit that will last longer, that will look better, that will taste better, uh, even creating new types of fruit that uh, wouldn't come into existence without our intervention. So you have, let's call it evolution one, which is just the evolutionary process at work over billions of years. And then evolution two, which is where humans come in and begin to intervene to uh, really, I don't know, what would you call it? Uh, corral the evolutionary process and mobilize it for the betterment of society. And so what you could say, the capitalist might say, is that capitalism is just a reflection of the life processes of evolution, really, but it's it's like evolution too. It's like it's it's where human beings, when we invented capitalism as a system, it's like we find a way to utilize and galvanize these natural instincts that we have, and they're natural because they are in nature. They are the part of the natural world, and we're able to uh, build a system that that is to the betterment of everybody. And of course, any intelligent capitalist will say, just like evolution, capitalism will have its crises, will have its dead ends. You know, evolution is not a benevolent thing. Uh, it just happens to tend towards creating more complexity and longer life. But there'll be lots of evolutionary dead ends. I mean, the fact that we have oil the fact that we, we have oceans of it uh, is evidence of the death of billions upon billions of, of life forms. So evolution uh, is not so much, it's not really a benevolent force, but it is a force that ultimately does create a deeper and a longer type of life. And in the same way, a capitalist might say, well, capitalism, yeah, it may end up in a dead end and it may create lots of crises, but generally, it will tend towards uh, the betterment of society. And if we can mobilize it and weaponize it in the right way, we can direct it to and maybe potentially ward off the, the problems that might arise otherwise. Okay, so that's, that's the argument in a nutshell. Um, and this is the argument basically of why, cap why there is no stage beyond capitalism. And that's key, right? Because we've had slavery, we've had feudalism, we've had capitalism. So what is the argument that says, well, now we are at the end of history, politically speaking. We have, you know, we've, we've developed through these processes from slavery and feudalism into capitalism. And there is nowhere to go, right? There's definitely places to go in terms of making a better system, but we have the system. 
it's like saying, you know, once we got to democracy, democracy is 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 where it's at. Of course, we can we can tinker with democracy, make it more democratic, etc. And that's a never ending task. But there is no step beyond democracy. And so the same argument is made is that there's no step beyond capitalism, which would not be completely destructive because ultimately it is just going with the grain of our natural instincts. Okay, so what, what's my concern with this argument? And basically, in a nutshell, the concern is that actually capitalism does not appeal to something natural. It actually appeals to something very unnatural. That's exactly where its power is. Its power is that it appeals to something that is not what we find in the rest of nature, but is something perverted, a perverted form of nature, nature twisted against itself. And that's called drive. So drive is a form of unnatural reality that comes out of nature. So it, it is natural in the sense of it comes out of nature, but it's perverted nature. And uh, without kind of getting into a theory of drive, I just want to articulate what drive looks like. Because I think when I articulate what it looks like, you'll be able to identify it. You'll be able to go, oh yes, I see what you're talking about. Uh, and then maybe in a different podcast, we can, we can talk about the theory of how the drive arises in human beings. But a drive is an instinct. In fact, it was, it's interesting, like the early, uh, the first translations of Freud translated drive as instinct. And it caused all sorts of problems whenever you read Freud, because it looked like he was talking about instinct, when Freud was fundamentally talking about something that was different from instinct. But the mistake was understandable, because drive which is what Freud wanted to talk about, it arises out of instinct. It looks like instinct, but it has a very important difference. And in a way, he was the, not the discoverer of drive. I mean, drive lies at the heart of the theological understanding of sin, for example. Uh, so there are medieval discussions on this, and there's lots of interesting insights in the history of philosophy. But Freud is the first person to really systematically begin to articulate what this perversion of nature is. And he calls it drive. So drive is an instinct. However, it's, it's different because when I, what I mentioned about instinct is instinct has an object, it can be satisfied, and it's in the service of life. Drive, the first thing you can say about it is it doesn't have very discrete particular objects. Human beings can have drives for anything, right? We can have, the, and so a drive is different from a desire. You have a desire for coffee. It doesn't matter if you have the coffee or not, right? It doesn't matter. You've got lots of desires in your life. But drive is when that particular person, you cannot be without them. Or, or gambling, you cannot get away from it. You're thinking about it all the time. Uh, or collecting something, where a car collector or, or wanting houses or whatever. See, literally, it can be everything. It's almost like I can't think of examples because everything can be an example. We have drives that are 
for certain sexual things, certain uh, uh, political things, certain kind of the, the possessions. I, it, it manifests in all sorts of ways, but it is this force that derails us. And it's not for food or for shelter or for mating. Now, it can be for those things. In fact, it very often is for those things. But, and this brings us to the second dimension, drive is not satisfied in the objects that it is driven towards. So even if, right, an animal has an instinct for food, if a human being has a drive for food, that is going to look very different. That will mean the human being will eat less than or more than they need, right? Animals tend to just eat what they need, but human beings can often have all of these problems with either eating nothing or nothingness, kind of anorexia, or eating uh, in excess, which is, and, uh, you know, which is, uh, I forget what you call it, um, but, uh, but, you know, but an excess of eating, right? A, a kind, of, uh, a kind of gluttony or whatever. And so we have all, in fact, it's very difficult to eat in a purely instinctual way, <laughs> even if you don't have a strong drive for food. Uh, but the same thing with shelter. An animal wants shelter. You get a dog and your dog lives in your apartment and the dog's happy, happy that it's got shelter. But if we have a drive to shelter, then you buy a house and you're already thinking about the next house. You want a bigger house or you want a second house or you want a third house, right? Uh, that it doesn't get satisfied in the having. In fact, the more you try to pursue the drive, the more you want uh, what you can't have. And if you do get the thing, then it kind of lacks its its power and you kind of want the next thing. So gambling is a perfect example. A gambler will, the more they gamble, the more they want to gamble. And again, I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of this now, but technically most gamblers are not addicted to winning. They're addicted to losing. Uh, it's whenever you lose you start to want to play more. In poker, it's called tilt. You go on tilt, which means you start to lose and it, you get this drive to throw in more money, to gamble even harder, to get this bigger hit. And the rational way of understanding it is to say, oh, you're just trying to get your money back. But the point is on tilt, you just start to, you start to bet badly. So in poker, what you want to do is you want to, you know, contingently, if you're lucky, win a few hands, get people around the table to start going on tilt because what they'll start doing is they'll just start to play a little worse than they would otherwise. But if they win the first few hands and you lose the first few hands of poker, you have to be very, very careful because then you've got the possibility of going on tilt. So you, know, you want the other person to go on tilt and not yourself. But the point being, the more you lose the more you want to play. And there's no real end to the person who is addicted to gambling. It's the same with mating, where we call it sex. Animals don't really have sex in the same way humans do. Uh, that's something we can talk about at another time. But, but if someone is addicted to and wants to have more and more sex, you know, it's not something that they can find satisfaction with one partner uh, over time. But maybe they have this drive to just go out as many times as they can and have sex as much as they can. So it's, it's not like an instinct. 
where it can be satisfied. It just keeps growing and growing and growing more and more and more. And then the third element, which is different from instinct, is instinct is in the service of life. It generally protects the organism, uh, but the drive generally acts against life. It de-centers us. So an instinct is trying to bring equilibrium and harmony and lengthening of life, but a drive brings an excitation. It, it, it disrupts harmony. Uh, in fact, we, we like this disruption as part of the, the power of drive. So it, it, it kind of works against the, the, uh, the, the finding of peace and also can end up damaging our lives. And, and in the example of, say, drug addiction, you end up, can end up dead. So the reason why I'm outlining the difference between instinct and drive, and the point being, and this is why in The Fundamentalist I talked about how I think evolutionary psychology operates from a fundamentally flawed presupposition, which is that evolution uh, continues to work in the same way in human subjectivity as it does in other organisms. Because the idea within Freudian analysis is that the drive is precisely perverted instinct and therefore is not does not obey the laws of evolution right we we somehow become self-sabotagers and the argument here from a psychoanalytic perspective is that capitalism appeals not to our natural instincts or the, or some sort of nature but actually precisely appeals to this perverted form of drive and you can see this, obviously, in the difference between other animals and humans. Other animals, they do not have this desire for more and more and more. Whereas within capitalism, there is no end. It is about the increase of capital without end, without object. Right? And money uh, can be seen as a value. Right? Money has no value but represents all value. And so money, in a sense, is nothing but, ever, it's everything. It is, it is the representation of value as such. And when you give yourself over to the increase of capital, to in, in the increase of value, this is a, a project that is without end. And interestingly, if you were selfish, you know, you say you get into the uh, banking and you're investing and you're making money, once you make, uh, let's say, you know, you, 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 first of all, you break $250,000 a year. It's a nice amount of money. You can live well pretty much anywhere in the world. You can live well with that amount of money. But then you just go, right, I want to get to the 500000 And then you I just want to get to the million. And yeah, you go, right, great, a million. We can live really well pretty much anywhere in the world. <laughs> But then if you keep giving yourself over to it, then you want five and then 10 and then 50 and then 100 and then 300, 500, and then you know, into a billion. And there's no end to it. And if you give yourself over to this, the problem is if you were selfish, you would stop at a certain point. If you were selfish, you would go, right, you know what, a million or two million or 10 million, I'm just going to go and have a fun time and forget about everything. <laughs> but, but people often get so caught up that they act against their own self-interest. And this is an interesting dimension of human beings because we often think of selfishness, people think of as bad, and selflessness as good. 
But we're talking about the drive. The drive is a form of selflessness that is bad. It's a perverted selflessness. It's a selflessness in the sense of the individual acts against their own self-interest. They do things that are destructive to them. So of course you might meet someone who thinks that if they had 10 million or 100 million, then they'd be happy. But when you meet people who have large sums of money uh, and then and you ask them, uh, you know, why don't you just stop working so hard? You've got loads of money, you can just enjoy yourself. Sometimes they'll say, well, yeah, my doctor says I'm going to have a heart attack and you know what, my wife left me or my husband left me or I'm estranged from my children, but I just can't help it. I just, I'm addicted to it, right? In other words, they know they're acting against their self-interest, but they can't stop, right? So it's not, it's not that capitalism is this kind of like, uh, it just plays to this natural self selfishness that we have. It actually plays into a perverse selflessness, that we have, that if we were more selfish, we would stop and uh, we would sit back and, you know, maybe give ourselves over to something else. So this argument is basically saying that, that what, what capitalism does is it, it promises an excess that will satisfy us, but that promise of the excess just feeds our sense of lack. It feeds our sense of not having. So the more we pursue this excess to try to get rid of the lack that we feel, the more dissatisfied we become. And in relation to the drive, what happens is human beings begin to fantasize an object that will fix them. So the object of the drive isn't anything real, but it is a fantasized object that will fix everything. And of course, people don't believe it in their minds, mostly, uh, but still we act as if it exists. We, we, we live as, towards it. So we maybe you know, give ourselves over to certain pursuits for uh, a certain amount of money that actually is damaging to us. But uh, let's use a concrete example. A concrete example might be the lottery. Okay, let's think about uh, someone who's playing the lottery who believes that if they win, their life will be transformed and they will be able to fix all the problems that they're facing in their life. Well, that fantasy, they, they're fantasizing an object, a fullness, an excess that's just over the horizon. And that feeds the sense of their own unhappiness in their present life. It also ties them to this object that is fantasized so maybe they spend more money than they should on lotto tickets. They think about it more often than they should. They're always preoccupied with it and they feel so unhappy in their, their current life. And actually this person who might have a terrible life, if they were able to free themselves from this fantasy a little, they might be able to save the money and do something else with it uh, or think about more about what is what is in their life that they are unhappy about and how they might change it. But what happens is you have this fantasized excess that is just over the horizon, which is winning the lotto. You're fantasizing that and it's, it's damaging to your life. Now then, in contrast to this, a lot of people think the answer is in getting rid of the fantasy. So get rid of your desire, somehow engage in practices that will help you remove yourself from 
the kind of frenetic uh, fantasy and desire of something that will fulfill you. But I would say that that does go, that goes against our unnatural dimension, right? That the reason why that's problematic is because we are creatures of fantasy and creatures of desire. Uh, you know, we, fantasy is so central to, to what it is to be human. Uh, Slavio Shizek says, uh, the different people think that the Freudian question or Freud thinks that you know everything is about sex we're doing everything but really we're thinking about sex but the Freudian question is really what what do we have to think about in order to have sex in other words you can't just have sex without fantasy you have to have some sort of phantasmic element to engage in the sexual act and this is just a way of saying really that fantasy is a fundamental part of what it means to be human and interact with the world. So the, 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 the solution potentially, and this is my interest actually in uh, what I'm trying to do in paratheology, but it's also my interest in psychoanalysis um, and uh, my interest in politics actually, is, is how do we continue to have fantasies about what we want and how to make our lives better, but without uh, fantasizing some endpoint in that that will fix everything. So in other words, let's contrast the lotto player who is fantasizing about winning that will fix everything with someone else who also loves to fantasize about winning the lotto. And they go out and they buy their ticket and they like to think about what they would do with the money. But they enjoy their fantasy because really they're not thinking that really winning the lottery would fix everything. At some level, they have embraced the struggle of life. They know it's a struggle, and they know that there are things that need to be improved, but they're freed from this idea that there is something, some singular thing that will fix it all. And they are comfortable with the idea that there are small things we can do in life to make life better, but there is nothing that takes away the trauma of life entirely. So they can still fantasize about winning the lottery, but they're not gonna spend all their money on it. They may just do it occasionally, and they don't take it that seriously. And the difference is they can enjoy their fantasy because the fantasy doesn't have this element of, you'll only be happy if you get it, if you get what you want. Uh, this person fantasizes, and in fact, they would probably say, my goodness, the last thing I would want is to get what I want, right? The last thing I would want is to live out my fantasy, because the fantasy is there to help make life a bit more bearable, but it's not there to, um, as, as the answer. I mean, I guess it's like this, is there's two forms of dreaming. There's the type of dreaming, you know, you dream of a better life, that, that stops you from looking at the suffering you're in, right? You, you're always dreaming about another life, a fantasizing about another life, and that stops you from looking at the difficulties that are within your life. And then there's a type of dreaming that galvanizes you to make changes in your life. So that's a very different type of dream. There's a dream that takes you away from your suffering and a dream that helps you change your suffering, that helps you kind of go, I need to make a change in my life and in the world. And... Uh, Traversing the fantasy is a term in Lacan that, that yeah, in a nutshell, is about freeing yourself from this type of desire in which we're giving ourselves over to this fantasized excess that just makes us feel more empty. And the irony is then, we need to make communities 
that are unified in the embrace of the lack. But when we embrace the lack, we rob it of its sting, right? That's, that's the trick. And in psychoanalysis, this is called the cure. And I would say in parotheology, it's called salvation. And in politics, this might be the form of political society that comes after capitalism. And we see hints of it in various places. Uh, let's take one example. Let's take AA as an example. Communities that are formed around us being right and having the answer and, and pursuing some excess, right? That, that's the way we know communities form. But AA is a community that forms around a lack. These people come together and they say, there is a problem in my life. I am weak. I'm broken. I've done things I'm not proud of. And they share that in a community of grace where they are accepted for who they are. And they're not asked to change. They are just accepted for who they are. And when the person can accept that acceptance and can speak the truth of their brokenness, they then can engage in the 12 steps. But the community is gathered around a shared lack. Now, in AA, it's around a particular lack in terms of damage of alcohol. But they are unified around a shared lack. And rich and poor and, and people from all walks of life and all levels of education come together and they form these like dysfunctional, difficult and beautiful and fragile communities that really offer transformation and healing. It's, it's a very beautiful thing. Communities like AA, uh, there's all sorts of communities like, that, that, that use this model. But this idea that we can actually unify around a shared lack. And weirdly, it sounds like bad news, right? The good news is, oh, you can be whole and complete and we can have the thing that will make us whole and complete. But that's actually bad news. It makes us more anxious and unhappy. But the bad news that you can't, that you need to find a community where we are gathered together in our lack, that's actually good news. <laughs> that leads to a really healthy and beautiful and joyful community. Joy being, in a technical sense, a type of pleasure of not having, right? Joy is a type of uh, uh, a pleasure in, in uh, the midst of not, of not having what, 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 what you desire. Uh, it sounds a little bit weird, but um, C.S. Lewis writes about it quite beautifully. I'm not a fan of C.S. Lewis, but he, uh, he writes, uh, I like his writing on joy. And for him, joy is, uh, is the enjoyment of an aroma of a world that inspires you, but that you do not dwell within. And uh, I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about joy. Joy is a type, of, a type of pleasure you get from having an aroma of a world that you do not inhabit, but that inspires you in your current life and inspires you to try to live better in your current life. So yeah, so that, that's kind of an, a notion of joy. Um, uh, Burning Man is another example, actually. Uh, Burning Man, now I know Burning Man has all this new age stuff, et cetera, et cetera, but at its core, everyone is unified around a burning, the loss of the man, the Burning Man, right? And they, the, the burning of the temple, where you put stuff into the temple and then you gather and you set the temple on fire. And the whole community is gathered together around a shared loss. Uh, I do a, a festival called Wake, 
a wake is a type of death ritual. And again, the reason why I call it wake is because it's a community that unifies over a shared loss, a shared lack that is part of what it is to be human. But by coming together and, and sharing that loss, having that wake, we actually find joy. And that's the thing about awake. Awake is actually a very fun, usually experience where you mourn, you cry, and you also laugh and you have companionship. Uh, and then lastly, the Last Supper is an interesting ritual where, where you're gathered together around a loss, the death of God. So again, it's a community that gathers around a table to remember a loss. And in that remembrance of a loss, something of what is lost returns. So there you go. There are some thoughts on capitalism, whether it's, it's natural or unnatural, some thoughts on drive and instinct, and some thoughts on what, say, in psychoanalysis might be called the cure, in uh, pyrotheology might be called salvation, and uh, without giving it a name, uh, this type of community, this type of uh, this form of being in the world, this form of desire, um, having a structure that encourages that and that brings us more deeply into that could be the, uh, the, next, the next step uh, in our uh, political system. All right, thank you so much for listening and uh, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.